Hello, citizens of Bunga. It's Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. This is another three articles in which we each bring an article to discuss, and then we discuss it. The date is Sunday, the 18th of October. Uh, you're listening to this later, but uh, the articles uh, are, if not quite timeless, then definitely still relevant uh, two weeks from now when you're hearing this. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK, but also with me, um, very intimately with me in my heart right here. That's that's what an introduction. I don't have anything to add. I'm really okay. touched, George, uh, Alex. Sorry. <laughs> oh well, I'm sure you can't even remember my name. <laughs> um, all right, so let's uh, let's go through. We've got three articles: one about cosmopolitanism, one about austerity, and uh, one about social control. Um, so big, meaty topics uh, and ones which um, will have a lot of lasting relevance. I think. So uh, let's start with cosmopolitanism. George, tell us uh, what you've brought us today. Yeah, so for today's show and tell, I've gone for Is Cosmopolitanism Our Destiny? The Dominance of the High Status Political Ideology Might Not Withstand Our Fractured Age. And this is a piece from Unheard, 13th of October 2020, obviously, um, by Aris Rusinos. Um, And I went for this because I thought it was an interesting um, take on what cosmopolitanism is and why it has been successful um and so basically the the starting point that aris takes is that there is a um book that's just come out the struggle over borders by a study by some dutch and german sociologists um and so he calls cosmopolitanism the instagram story of political ideologies and the basic argument here is that it's uh, this idea is predominant in the taste-making class of the entire Western world and has gone from being a fairly niche topic in political philosophy around 20 years ago to being um, essentially characteristic of, an in, of the outlook of, a, of an entire group um, of people and, and, a, and a very um, influential one. So I think what, what I found interesting in this or what I thought resonated and was essentially correct was the importance of the moral aspect. So it might be put forward as a, as a political philosophy or a, a case of political theory, but in fact, the um, open borders, universal norms, super, supranational authority, um, these things are put as the moral destiny of the world. And this importantly allows opponents of cosmopolitanism to be painted as narrow-minded chauvinists under the spell of populist demagogues. So, yeah, I think um, this hits, hits the nail on the head in terms of de- describing what cosmopolitanism is in terms of an outlook of a, of a particularly privileged um, and in, an influential group. Um and then finishes on on a nice note as well, which maybe we can talk about in a bit, um, drawing some 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 uh, ideas from Marx. But yeah, what did you guys make of it? Um, I thought, I mean, one thing on the way you introduced it, you know, it's a, of a particularly privileged set, and I think it absolutely is. I mean, if you talk about you know the Davos set or you know people who holiday in kind of fancy destinations or whatever yes but i think the the interesting thing is that it has um not appeal i mean that effectively cosmopolitan modes of of thinking and behaving have um are much more widely adopted i mean widely at least amongst the middle class but people who aren't necessarily uh, necessarily wealthy and i think that's quite uh, an interesting thing um precisely because uh, aris highlights that um 
that you know the, these are that it's he ties it to empire basically to cosmopolitanism and and you know the the way that cosmopolitans today look to um, old imperial capitals like maybe uh, Vienna during the Habsburgs or uh, Istanbul during the Ottomans uh, it wasn't called Istanbul then but anyway uh, as um, as exemplars of cosmopolitan living um, but he argues precisely that it's something that is only applicable or really only suited to empire and not to self-rule um, but today you get actually um, you get it uh, you get people being cosmopolitans in in the imperial capital so in London or New York or Paris uh, these are all part of uh, at least the empire of finance and perhaps the American empire and so they're that's why maybe cosmopolitanism appeals in these places, but not in other places where there might be uh, more distance from power and therefore more of a desire for self-rule. Yeah, so I should say, I mean, um, so Aris is my PhD student at the University of Kent. And, um, you know, so may, I mean, many of his pieces within Herd, I think, are, even if I don't agree with all of them, uh, tremendously insightful. And I think, you know, this piece is no exception the particularly, I mean, you know, and he captures that point that it's not just kind of, um, I don't know, people who go to Davos, but the tastemaking classes, like he says, it's, um, and the indication that it's also part of a, it's a wider kind of category um, in which uh, that element you know, goes beyond the kind of the super wealthy and the oligarchs, but nonetheless is uh, a set of ideas that are essentially congruent with the you know the politics and economics of that outlook so it's a broad kind of broad range of social strata and with respect to this point about the um what alex says how it's kind of incompatible with um with political self-rule it's an interesting question um how far is it incompatible with self-rule i mean i suppose the you know we're insofar as we're all it's a single imperial kind of world, or it was at least, you know, it's a world of globalization. And I'm not sure London and Paris count as imperial capitals in that kind of, uh, in that order. Well, I, 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 what I, I mean, they're I, even I, provinces. I was kind of reading through it, reading across it, I guess, rather than putting forward my view on that. But I guess if you see it, it as the empire, the, no, but if you see it as the kind of the empire of finance, for example, then all the main financial centers are, are part of that. And people lower down the social rung will still somehow identify with the cosmopolitanism of, uh, of finance-led globalization. Well, well, I think actually that the, the mechanism that, that he focuses on is, is in some ways sociological, not political. So it's state and supranational executives, global business leaders, experts and transnational NGO professionals. I mean, this this group of people who are not, you know, that's not the big, not big bourgeoisie. Um, but what he says and drawing on ideas from Pierre Bourdieu is, uh, is basically that political opinion in some groups and in some circumstances, and these groups, I think, particularly um, this applies to, political opinion is a signifier of, of essentially of taste of, of aesthetic um, correctness of um, status um, and so it's about uh, having the right sorts of ideas more than them corresponding specifically or not just them corresponding specifically to class interests but corresponding to a specific um, I guess outlook and a group of people who are particularly concerned to distinguish themselves um, from others through the um, the quality and the sophistication yeah. of, of their of, of their tastes, including um, political ideas, and it's 
in some ways i think a symptom of of a post-political age that this can apply to political actors as well so and maybe that's actually you know part you know those two things go hand in hand that in a post-political age actor political actors have they're not representing constituencies of interest but instead they're having um intra-elite uh, or in intra-elite kind of competition to have the, the most correct sort of of attitudes and i thought yeah. that was an interesting approach well just one thing on that which which i think is quite interesting the way that he describes it is that the old bourge- forms of bourgeois distinction which was you know high versus low culture um you know i go to the opera so therefore you know i'm, I'm this worthy bourgeois individual unlike you know you people singing folk sound folk songs down the beer hall um now is cosmopolitan versus local beer hall but that's beer what I said. Hall, alex yeah is that what you used to do no yeah, that, don't you go I'm, to I'm the beer about, hall like, and sing some folk songs phil you that's should fascist do. alex but, but, but yeah huh well it'd be whatever the point that's huh? beer hall isn't fascist they're they're, they're, they're a drinking establishment and institution in certain parts of the world um although also sites for uh for fascist putches and whatever but that's a you know that's another story anyway um i just like the way that that old high low culture distinction which it no longer holds and there's no bourgeois who upholds high low culture distinction there um as much part of melding high and low culture and into pop culture as anyone else. Uh, now it's cosmopolitan versus uh, versus local. To be rooted in a specific place is seen as, uh, you know, down at heel, uh, unfashionable, whereas being cosmopolitan is the chic thing to do. Um, yeah. I guess one of the, one of the um, to, to kind of take it, I guess, more into the sociology, one of the key mechanisms here is that you have, uh, to, to distinguish yourself from other people and to or other groups, um, you have two things that you can do. You can either embrace certain things or certain cultural practices or political ideas, or you can reject them. Um, and actually, the the process of of rejecting certain ideas is often found to be a stronger marker of um, of group boundaries than accepting them. So it's not about what you believe; it's about what you reject. So. Yeah. This Which could, is crucial, I think. Yeah, and then that could also apply here, right? Cosmopolitanism is quite fluffy, quite vague, but actually the things that you reject are quite clearly marked, and those things are, are cafone. Those things are like, ugh, you can't deal with them. They're just like, you know, bad. They can't person. even. Yeah. yeah, like people who vote Brexit, um, that kind of thing. The the hatred of, um, I mean, it's the hatred of your own your own people, essentially. I mean, that's what it amounts to in the political context, at least, yeah. if not exactly the sociological one. Yeah, I think that's probably right. One thing that I think is interesting uh, that he draws out is cosmopolitanism an sich or für sich, uh, cosmopolitanism in itself uh, oh, versus so for itself. Well, that's what he, I'm just quoting, you know, so direct it. It was just the way he ours. quoted it. Uh, <laughs> well so anyway so it, i'll raise it with him in his next phd seminar if you listen yeah. to us <laughs> yeah um so uh in it cosmopolitanism in itself would be something which would not be tied to a social or political project the social project being the one of uh distinction of you know showing yourself to be better than than other people or different from other people the kind of snobbery that we've just been discussing or the political project of cosmopolitanism as um you know kind of transnational organizations open borders and so on um 
to so cosmopolitanism maybe was that and was a good thing uh now it has become cosmopolitanism for itself which is if not quite entirely self-conscious in fact aris highlights the fact that most people who are cosmopolitan is who are cosmopolitans uh issue the word cosmopolitan and cosmopolitan you know and the idea of cosmopolitanism um because it it's seen um, perhaps in a negative light, but they are de facto cosmopolitanists. Um, so it doesn't, although cosmopolitanism today doesn't have the self-consciousness of, of you know, of, of declaring itself as cosmopolitan, it still has a political project. It still tries to um, advance the interests, I guess, of cosmopolitans as cosmopolitans. Uh, and I think that was quite an, in, an interesting distinction. It's not the old cosmopolitanism as just a, a lived reality for, for a set of people living in, you know, Vienna in 1900, but becomes a kind of, uh, m- has a much more direct kind of social purpose and object to it. I think the, the people whose interests are most furthered by by this specific set of ideas are people whose, who are, whose interests are most tied up with supranational institutions of various sorts, because those that's the level at which the cosmopolitan um, lives. And it's important to distinguish between cosmopolitanism and a true internationalism. And that's the, you know, that's the difference, which I, or that's the distinction, which I think the past 20 years in general, and this is to generalize massively, the left has, has, has found it more difficult to do. So we have all of these kind of people talking about, let's have a progressive international and let's, but it has to be grounded in the, the reality of the nation state, first of all. And that's a, you know, that's difficult to do if you have a, instinctive wariness of of your domestic working class and that's the reality i think of a, a lot of a lot of these sorts of people yeah and i mean cosmopolitanism then you know uh, was different from cosmopolitanism now precisely because place mattered so much more intimately i think to people's existence so you could be a you could be cosmopolitan but you were nevertheless going to be rooted somehow whether it was in your city versus your country or however else uh, it might be conceptualized whereas today there's such a so many different ways that we can escape place whether it's because of social media communicating uh, us with different parts of the world uh, international travel uh, the fact that global elites don't really depend international at all travel. on national huh? What's- What's that? Yeah, what's that? That's, indeed, um, but I really remember that. Yeah, uh, but you know, global elites being able to move from place to place and not really depending on the economy of a specific nation state—all um, these things mean that the role of place is much more lessened, and means that cosmopolitanism um, becomes something else, becomes more obnoxious, and becomes um, something which, like, is not rooted in any way. I think it's not. Um, yeah, I think it, it maybe doesn't have the kind of. The, the positive notion of multiculturalism that it used to have. In fact, cosmopolitanism today is probably exceptionally monocultural, which is um, an ironic uh, turn of events. Yeah, I mean, world world literature becomes becomes unified um, and unitary. But yeah, I, I guess just to to um, I think the conclusion's quite quite nice, or the the, the marks that is that is quoted just to 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 wrap it off um, to to wrap it up the the piece so our, and this, this is the quote all the destructive phenomena which unlimited competition gives rise to within one country are reproduced in more gigantic proportions on the world market and this is the, the i think the, the thing in the tale to such a degree that 
And this is a quote to call cosmopolitan exploitation, universal brotherhood is an idea that could only be engendered in the brain of the bourgeoisie. And I think that's true. The, it requires a certain view of the world to take your interests and your group's interests and um, posit those as, as universal and, um, and is held by, by everybody. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's unsurprising that there's um, that the, I guess the tone of the article is not particularly positive towards towards this group of people because they they're not, um, not obviously nice not people. politically our, our our allies. Sorry, what's that, Phil? Nothing. Not nice people. <laughs> what do you mean, not white most people? Nice people. I said nice no. People. They're not nice people. That didn't sound very nice. Okay, let's move on. Uh, the next one is uh, the one I've brought. It's an article in the Financial Times uh, from October the 16th by Chris Giles. Uh, Global economy, the week that austerity was officially buried. The IMF and World Bank are urging richer countries to spend their way out of the pandemic, although some developing nations face cuts. Um, so this comes subsequent to the uh, IMF uh, releasing recommendations saying that the COVID should not prompt austerity, that you know countries should keep spending and so on. I mean, that at least was the headline. Um, the article, just to summarize it, uh, it starts off by noting that notable former Austerians now say that we should borrow. Um, and the problem that, uh, or the reason that austerity kind of came about was based on a previous experience, finding that um, fiscal stimulus or fiscal measures were too slow uh, to respond to the cycles in the economy to, to kind of try to... Um, apply measures to, for example, to, to, to slow down inflation or to increase it if need be. Um, and therefore, monetary policy came in. Um, now, it argues, both money, now, um, now you kind of need both, basically, monetary and fiscal policy, um, not least because monetary policy is seen to be in- insufficient. I mean, there's no more rope in it, uh, insofar as you've basically got near zero interest rates, negative interest rates, even in certain countries. Um, so how does uh, the FT explain this change, uh, this real, real volt fast in respect to austerity? Uh, you know, the 2010s were the decade of, of neoliberal austerity, and now even the IMF is saying uh, we, no more. So the reason for it, as the FT sees it, is that, one, uh, there was an underlying productivity fall over the 2010s, and monetary pol- policy wasn't really able to do anything about it, uh, wasn't able to really stimulate growth. Uh, and therefore, another approach is needed. Number two, uh, borrowing costs are extremely low. I mean, this is part of part and parcel of uh, of what central banks have been doing over the past decade, um, and have now incre- continued doing uh, under the impact of the COVID crisis. But now are also reaching for for fiscal measures. Um, it should be noted, I guess, that. Uh, the, the low borrowing costs, meaning that one that states should borrow, uh, applies more directly to one-off increases in debt, such as, for example, stimulus, rather than continual expenditure on health and welfare, which is something that would be needed um, with COVID or just in general to deal with uh, the, the fallout of, of the COVID crisis. Uh, the third argument for the change um, is that there's no real mood for austerity anymore, um, both maybe within a, economists, but also in wider society, in part due to challenge from populists who have come in and been like, well, we don't really care about the deficit, Donald Trump being uh, a case in point. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's it's quite interesting in, in heralding a, a significant change. I mean, something that we've discussed before that 
was seemed to be sort of leaving neoliberalism um, and entering an age of state capitalism. But I think that's still something that needs to be uh, demonstrated to be proved by actual events because we're still kind of in a very uh, in-between stage. It's curious, I think, that neoliberalism has become so closely associated with austerity, which is a sort of a departure from what it originally was. Because, you know, if you think about the 2010s, the 2010s were times of austerity, of states uh, cutting back, um, especially on kind of social spending, but also at times of, of stimulus, you know, the, of response to the 2008 crisis. Um, so I think our vision of what neoliberalism is, is very tied to that experience. And we kind of forget what neoliberalism was in the 80s and then in the 90s, which is mm. uh, a different kettle of fish. So I guess the question would be, um, are, is the, are the 2010s going to be a continuation of neoliberalism, but again, in a new form? No, I think that's a really good way to, to, to pose it, that the um, we need a political, not an economic definition of neoliberalism, because it isn't, it seems like it might well be compatible or at least continuous if we have a if we have a post neoliberal project um we have a lot of the same same people still in power um because there clearly something has has changed and we've talked about this previously on the podcast but just to you know repeat the the main figure in the, in the article 11.7 trillion uh dollars um has is the increased spending that we've seen in response to the coronavirus and this is 12% of global gdp compared with 2% of global GDP um, in the G20 stimulus package after the global financial crisis. So it's really, it is a really, um, you know, that's, that's the, whatever the opposite of austerity is, it's not abundance, but it's um, we need to come up with a, with a, with a word for that because it is, you know, that's, that's the form that state capitalism is, is taking is that privileging of the fiscal over the monetary at the moment. So, yeah, I think it was, it's a, if this was the week that austerity was officially buried, it would be it would be good to sort of see, you know, what's when we look back, what's going to be the political event or what's going to be the 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 signal point that we can look back at this. I mean, for me, it was when the Bank of England announced unlimited quantitative easing in March. I was like, that's that's something which um, I'll look back on that uh, a few years hence and think, well, that that may well have been a Albeit that was it, that was a monetary measure which was completely in line with, with what was done in response to the 2008 so crisis. So when your, grand, when your grandkids ask you where were you, George, when the Bank of England went for unlimited monetary quantitative easing, what will you tell them? I I, I will have to come up with a, a more interesting story than the truth, which I think is what everybody does at this. Like when Kennedy was shot, what were you doing? Well, can't remember or, or whatever. But um, yeah, um, I was probably working from from home. That was middle of March. Um, but yeah, I think the it, it, I think the major point that I would make about this is it it probably just shows, and this is a, again a point that we've made a number of times: the weakness of the ruling consensus that the this vault fast was um, in some ways it was made quite easily. People were able to reconcile themselves to, to um, opinions or positions, which were kind of the opposite of what they'd, uh, what they'd previously said as the, as the article details. And I think that does show just the, the lack of grounding in a, in a solid project um, that the ruling class currently have. I mean, I would, you know, so it's a very useful article, you know, um, for laying it out and for saying it clearly. And I think it's a marker for that, you know, the end of um, the end of austerity and the switch from kind of monetary policy as the defining instrument of the attempts to 
regulate, um, reform, improve, whatever. Um, the thing that's so kind of grubby about it, though, is, you know, not least the, I mean, the organ within which it's published um, and the tone also. So many of these pieces in the FT and in The Economist and in the kind of um, financial press. So frequently they take this line of explaining the process as, you know, it's a kind of, it's a process of learning. So we had this and then, you know, we realized this didn't work and now we're trying this. Um, And this kind of, um, as if it's an academic uh, process or, you know, kind of a process of experimentation without tremendous social costs. And as if they're the first ones to just think about it, as if this learning was something that just occurred to them first, as if there haven't been people arguing this for a long time. Exactly, right. Who are not, who are not, um, who are not credited. Um, and so it's this kind of unbroken, this kind of unbroken collective learning process that we're all learning here. We're all on the same side. This is um, mistakes were made, but now we understand better. Um, and it's really, it's really grubby and repulsive. Um, and also speaks to the fact of just how, um, you know, how they're kind of retroactively shaping, reshaping the um, series of events and the series, you know, the processes that got us to where we are. And also suggesting as if there was no political struggles involved or no um, clashes of views where one side won out. In fact, the side that was wrong, the side that the FT was consistently championing and that the other side, which now the FT says is actually vindicated effectively by the new policies that the FT supports, wasn't being disparaged um, and crushed actively and opposed in so many different ways. So um, the whole, you know, I mean, for... It's one of these kind of paper of record statements, which I'm sure will uh, be, you know, it'll be a kind of... an article that will be um, referenced for a long time, but at the same time, it's also needs to be seen as this, um, you know, effectively the attempt to shape a political consensus um, while at the same time exculpating itself from culpability for what, um, what was done before for which the FT and the, all the people it talks about, the central bankers, the senior democratic economic advisors, Larry Summers, all of that lot, they're all deeply, Oliver Blanchard, all the F, you know, uh, IMF, Nobel mm. Prize winning textbook writing fuckers, all of them are all guilty and yeah. part of it. Mm. Absolutely. I guess and in that, go on, George. In that sense, the, the, just the the headline itself is is quite important. The week that austerity was officially buried, so people can say, "Oh yeah, this this is the when the FT called it," and they can say, "Yep, yeah, you know, we we you know look, look at this specific uh, piece at this specific time." Um, yeah, but I, I agree. Grubby is a good a good word. There's also, I think, it's somewhat overstated actually um, for two reasons. One is that. It is one thing it's completely blind about, which is that uh, populists are still neoliberals. I mean, so for all that, there's a populist challenge to austerity. And I guess we should also be clear that the article is about austerity and not about neoliberalism as a whole. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the notable thing, I think, about this, the rise of populists and so on that's so discussed and creates so much froth and, and hand-wringing as well is that the the economic policies are broadly speaking kept in place that there's not very much difference between uh, a clinton and a trump you know um or indeed an obama and a trump uh, more directly uh and that applies everywhere else that you know you, you talk about populists and power uh, there might be some cosmetic changes even some you know some changes to trade policy you know as, as is the case with trump but the the 
it, and there might be a little bit more laxity with regard to spending. Um, but, you know, that Trump's tax cuts follow on from George Bush's tax cuts. So I, there's a, a huge amount of continuity in political economic terms, uh, which is often um, passed over in discussions about uh, the populists when they focus on the populist rhetoric as opposed to what the actual uh, economy is. Um, and the other thing, which I th- which it kind of minimizes, is uh, the developing world, where in the v- developing world, the medicine will still be applied, and especially specifically the austerity medicine, um, in part for you know quote unquote economic reasons, uh, which is that they don't have that much access to funding, um, and there's also the risk of inflation, so they can't just print money or whatever, um, and therefore uh, th- you know they're more constrained. But it's also you know we should really be clear about this. It's part of a political project um, for of the domination and uh, underdevelopment of developing countries. So. You know, neoliberalism and specifically the austerian version of neoliberalism is still very much uh, applies there. Um, and I think maybe you could probably go further and say that, you know, the experience in outside of the capitalist core of neoliberalism has always been kind of pretty different um, to uh, to to what it is in the capitalist core. So, um, you know, that that whole story of privatization, sell offs, um, deregulation and so on uh, is still kind of the go-to recipe uh, in a lot of the developing world. Um, you know, believe, and it, of course there's this, obviously this sense of backwardness to it in that, you know, the, the rich world has developed, has moved on and we're, we're moving beyond, uh, you know, these old-fashioned now uh, austerian measures, you know, privatization. No, no, no. We need to actually kind of maybe renationalize certain industries, bring in more regulation. Um, but of course, what's good for the goose isn't uh, good for the gander. Well, it's going to be interesting if that goose gander contradiction is is heightened or is made more visible just in the, to the extent that if the IMF is still um, promoting structural adjustment or various kind of austerian measures at the same time that all of these um, yeah. like yeah. the US or the UK are just are just spending 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 I mean is, is that yeah. gonna Will will that actually have any I mean, effect? It, that it isn't. I mean, it, it isn't. But it's more, it isn't. But it it happens more kind of subtly. It's like no, no. Maybe you know we we've moved against austerity, but you know you you people down there should still be should still be careful with your finances. Whereas uh, you know they're fine with you know France or the US doing it. But it becomes less politically legitimate. So I mean, yeah. I mean George raises the point right that even if it's kind of the inconsistency makes it more politically difficult and an inconsistency that politicians in um, uh, the global South would be able to exploit. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, let's call it the goose gander contradiction because I think that's the <laughs> way let's, to... Let's, maybe let's not. Okay, um, but um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, okay, so um, after that landmark piece, we'll move on to one uh, which is maybe, well, you know, kind of familiar territory. Um, but uh, Phil, you're going to tell us about an article about social control in the pandemic. Yeah, so this is um, an article by Christopher Caldwell, um, conservative, uh, conservative, intelligent kind of conservative commentator. It's an article in the New York Times published um, a bit of a while ago now, so the 21st of August uh, 2020. It's called Meet the Philosopher Who is Trying to Explain the Pandemic, and it is an article about Giorgio Agamben. So um, Giorgio, 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 um, Agamben is... I think you're a, mispronouncing the surname. It's, it's a, a gammon. I'm going to pretend you didn't Phil's, say that. Phil's chosen an article by a gammon, a fellow gammon. Cosmopolitans on the podcast, you see. <laughs> the um, oh, Now you've made me lose my train of thought um, while I was presenting it. So 
Um, it's basically introducing a gammon. Oh, God. <laughs> it's introduce, introducing a gammon's thought, and I think it does a good. It does justice to um, you know, as a, in a short kind of newspaper article, um, given the kind of highfalutin character of um, a gammon's thought, it you know I think it does a good job of uh, trying to do it justice. So. Agamben, I mean, he draws on um, philosophers such as Foucault and uh, Hannah Arendt, and he was particularly exercised famously during the War on Terror. And he produced, I mean, there was a short kind of, um, a very short book published in English called State of Emergency, where he talked about the way in which um, the various kind of uh, emergency, political emergency regimes by states were ways of stripping back um, our rights and stripping back everything um, through which um, we were kind of made social and human and political, in fact, reducing us to what he called bare life, and that there was a strong overlap between this idea and the idea of um, human rights and rendering people effectively powerless and supine before the power of the state. Um, it's very kind of evocative, um, uh, powerful, beguiling, problematic in all sorts of ways, um, and seemed very much the kind of the um, the legal theory of the era for the war on terror, and was very um, plenty of kind of uh, legal theorists, uh, social theorists, political thinkers were very fond of um, using some of these ideas to try and understand the extraterritoriality, uh, the black sites, the new kind of um, legislation passed in various countries, the new border control measures, um, the new kind of uh, biological markers on passports, and notoriously a gambin, and this is something that uh, Caldwell talks about in the article, he was in this, uh, he rejected traveling to the US um, because he saw that the, um, he did the kind of the, uh, biometric um, data that was being gathered by the Homeland Security when visitors arrive in the US was effectively a kind of new totalitarian paradigm and even compared it outrageously to um, be the tattoos that um, Jewish prisoners were given in Auschwitz. So, I mean, all of that was kind of extreme. And so Agamben is, uh, in, is somebody who is... Um, uh, characterized, I suppose, by his, um, how would you say, kind of um, dramatic and um, hyperbolic kind of responses in trying to res uh, fix on particular phenomena. Um, but nonetheless, I think there is something to be said for him in the context of the pandemic, because what's striking about the various kind of state responses is how um, difficult um, states in developed in the developed world in particular, which is to say liberal democracies, have had how diff the great difficulty they've had dealing with um, the pandemic without recourse to emergency forms of power. And so, and Gambon's consistency, his um, insistence on the fact that what we're seeing is the development of new forms of authority, which are based in um, med, you know, based on medical scientific claims, um, and um, that it's kind of uh, extending this paradigm of emergency rule. Is I think he's been he's consistently kind of stuck to that, and it's earned him plenty of opprobrium. But I think um, without wishing to endorse the entirety of the kind of um, uh, theoretical kind of superstructure he builds up, I'd say that there is inside there, and he's he's also very attentive to the extraordinary character of some of the things that have happened um, during the 
you know, throughout the pandemic. And he mentions the fact of um, people whose bodies were burned. He's referring to Italy, where people's bodies were burned en masse without funerals. I mean, and it's truly, um, you know, that's truly shocking and extraordinary. When we think about all the horror stories, I'm sure people have heard of them, listeners have heard of them. They've been reported widely of people who are dying and can't be accessed by their loved ones due to um, uh, restrictions on um, contact. Um, so the not only the kind of the crudity of the and the extremity of um, the you know various kind of having troops on the streets, people being locked down for months, curfews and all of that, but also just the kind of basic cruelty and redundant cruelty as well in those kind of circumstances. And one thing he's picked up on, which I think is, um, and it speaks to the character of his insight, is this question of social distancing. So he yeah. says, why why wasn't it called physical distancing or personal distancing? Um, which would be, in fact, more um, more in line with the uh, kind of medical character of the phenomenon. You know, you physically distance yourself in order to uh, avoid contaminating other people or being contaminated. Why was it called social distancing? And I think um, there is, you know, there is something to be said. The slip of the tongue, which is, or the or the the idea that is contained in social yeah. distancing, speaks to. Um, and the fact that it became uh, so normalized so quickly, the acceptable discourse for talking about a certain kind of behavior speaks to the fact that we were already um, pre-programmed to accept this kind of potential. Um, and I think that, you know, um, that to that extent, I think Agamben has insights to offer us. And he is right to draw attention to the continuity in the emergency regime, which takes us from the war and terror to um, the rule of lockdown effectively under Corona. Yeah, I mean, just to this point on this point on social distancing, I think he shouldn't be performatively puzzled by this because it's actually it makes sense in a way that there's a <clears throat> there's that, that movement from the techno medical or the kind of the, the this idea of physical distancing to what was the 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 desired effect or what was the the desired implication of social distancing policies, which wasn't to keep people physically apart, but to keep them socially apart and to actually change um, people's behaviour, to change their, you know, to to make them less likely, less less want to to socialise. So I think he it, it might seem like a, a minor point, but I think. Actually, though the 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 fact that he flags this the, the use of this term, I think it is a it is quite emblematic of a lot of the the response, at least in in certain in the UK to to coronavirus, because that has been the you've had this this public health crisis, this economic crisis, but but not a, it hasn't really been politicized it's been like we have to do these things you know we, we can you know social distancing is necessary we need to we need to to, to do this we need to counsel society um yeah, it's about control and i mean yeah. he, do, he makes the point obviously that importantly social distancing demobilizes prevents i mean it actively um it actively kind of prevents actual um politics the idea of base you know politics requires kind of social interaction it requires immediacy and at least the capacity organizing. To kind of yeah organizing and the capacity to protest so you know it's um it's not an insignificant point and i think you're right george like it wasn't just kind of an accident it was very it was intended to um control to alter people's behavior and is significant but, to that degree, and it genuinely has altered people's. I think. Behavior. I think. I think we need to alter people's behavior in a pandemic. 
I mean, I think medically, no, as a, from look, a public health perspective. Would, yeah, but so, this is what he said, but, right? Physical distancing, personal I, distancing. Exactly. No, so I agree. I think, we, I think we just have to be... I understand. I understand. I, I agree. And I think that's an interesting insight. I mean, you know, it's we can't just say that uh, we can read off from, from the label what is contained within. Um, just because they've called it one thing doesn't, you know, tell you exactly what, uh, you know, is the Democratic Party really democratic? No, well, you know, they use the term. So, you know, sometimes it can terms can be misleading. I do think it's interesting, though, the idea that this could be a sort of Freudian slip. It's true that it would seem so obvious that it should be called physical distancing and not social distancing. Um, That said, you know, I think the problem with these things is that there's so much built up resentment over this over state power uh, that it manifests itself in ways which are end up being pretty counterproductive. And that's, I think, evident in the way that you've put it, Phil, about people being primed for social distancing right that that was already that, that that it was already kind of in the ether because of the war on terror because of having had that experience of arbitrary state power uh, emergency regimes and so on that we were that society was relatively supine in accepting a lot of the measures without much uh, without much contestation um the, the 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 difficulty that you get is that the argument with the emergency power for terrorism was that oh you should all be afraid because terrorists could attack you at any point in time, which is patently untrue. Whereas the case today is that you might get ill at any point in time is kind of true. I mean, not at any point in time, because whatever, you can take measures to prevent that, you can wear a mask, you may wash your hands and all these kinds of good sorts of behavior changes which are necessary. Um, but basically, the, the disease presents a much more real threat to people than terrorism ever did. So it becomes quite difficult then to challenge it because Does you can't challenge, well, because you can't challenge the apparatus as a whole. You can't just say we're against all pandemic measures, right? No, we, you will not take any of our freedom. Well, no, sir, there will be certain negotiation over what is actually necessary. Some measures, some restrictions are necessary. You might need to stop air travel for, for a part or close borders to prevent the disease getting in as some countries successfully did. So I think there are measures that you have to accept in these exceptional circumstances. I mean, if ever some emergency measures are necessary, it would be in a pandemic. So I mean, that's the that's the tricky thing that this presents us with, that you want to draw some red lines and say, you know, lockdown is too far, yeah, lockdown not, is too much. But it's, but, not, but it's not that tricky. I mean, you know, it seems to me that there are, um, you know, there are kind of clear, and they were clear at the time as well, things to do. And normally, I mean, surely that what you do in a pandemic is you protect the vulnerable. And for all the kind of mystery and still the lack of um, basic information and knowledge about uh, a novel coronavirus, it was fairly clear that it was a very, you know, very particular groups of people that were the most vulnerable. And yet they were the ones who were not protected. And instead, control, extensive control has been deployed around vast ways of the population, say students here in the UK at the moment, who are not vulnerable, who are not as vulnerable to the disease as others. So um, it's not, uh, you know, this kind of. It's not an abstract. I don't think it's. I don't think it's so straight. I don't think it's so straightforward. The vulnerability question. First of all, people live together. So I mean, that would really be social distancing if you have to separate and move elderly people out of their house where they might live with their children or their grandchildren. So, and that depends in different societies. So in countries where there's not intergenerational households, uh, that's fairly easy. In Italy, where there are far more than there are in Sweden, for example. That's not possible, right? So well, you could have, so you could I, have, with those, ha- but no, but those households could have been put into quarantine, right? Rather than a curfews over a whole kind of read. No, I, I, no, look, I agree, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I've been skeptical of the lockdowns the the whole time, and certainly of their reimposition. Although I'll concede there might have been some immediate short term necessity for them back in March. Um, 
you know, again, that's just taking the short term view. But what I'm what I want to get at is that it's you, you, I, we can't reject things out of hand because they impose certain kind of costs. Uh, you know, I think there needs to be. Mm-hmm. An, an evaluation sure. of the epidemiology and the and the and and a, and a general holistic look at public health, you know, which again is why the lockdowns are so damaging because they yeah. injure public health in other ways. And so you're not taking a look at okay, but what is happening to cancer patients? Well, they're not getting treatment, they're not getting tested, children aren't being vaccinated. Well, okay, then you've completely inflated the risk of COVID versus other things, which was incorrect. So anyway, my point, and again to relate to an earlier episode, is. A degree of agnosticism um, and to seek to politicize those the the those things that can be politicized or at least emphasize those things that we think are important to defend such as you know sociability and um, not have to subject completely arbitrary state power um, and not seek to kind of politicize the whole problematic of the whole at, at the kind of very technical root of, of medicine and epidemiology. Isn't I mean, but that, isn't that Agamemnon's point that the um, <clears throat> that this is this is where the you know th- this is where the legitimacy has to come from that it's technically it's in, in the title techno medical despotism that there ha- there isn't an ability to um, to get widespread political uh, mass support for any of these these measures instead they're applied in a very um, in a very kind of one size fits all way i mean there is support there is support i mean in the uk you know in the uk for example there is widespread support for the lockdowns and i think that's something which needs to be tangled with i don't you know no there is but i mean or at least the opinion polls suggest there is um very strong support for even more stringent measures but then the data is also riddled with inconsistency if you ask people the same people who support kind of strong measures how far they actually observe them they observe them very yeah. very um in a very patchy way so i mean there's tremendous kind of inconsistency in terms of the data but i think what what is being gotten at is that the the authority itself is the way in which it's been justified is in unpolitical ways so the you know at the top of the article it says uh, techno medical despotism so it's an it, the point is it's authority which is cast in the lang you know in not political authority um, with kind of responsible and accountable decision making based on politics which is the weighing up of all these kind of conflicting pressures um, with uh, other kind of uh, social uh, necessities and demands, but in terms of the what is required by technical and medical um, scientific imperatives, so it's drawing on a different kind of con- concept of authority. And I think this is what he draws attention to, and it is worth um, it is worth being clear about that. You know, the political consequences of authority that isn't that is uh, kind of uh, operates in this disguised way effectively well, that's political the, power that justifies itself by reference to non-political uh, means that's the i think that's the the key point in a way the the Foucauldian point one of the only that i would uh, concede is useful from from his thought is that political power can particularly under technocracy be disguised as expertise and that's not to you know that's not to be anti science and not to throw out the baby with the bathwater but that is that is true if you have a non-political justification for political power then it is possible that existing power will be disguised as expertise and that is something which makes makes i guess politicizes or or, or can politicize the assessment of any um response to very, to coronavirus 
very strikingly in, you know, I mean, and this has to be said, is given how many academics, um, how many scholars have been versed in those Foucauldian theories, kind of post-Marxist theories, criminologists, sociologists, social theorists, political theorists, um, countless kind of historians, countless scholars of so many stripes have been versed in these kind of Foucauldian points about the way in which um, medical authority is used to kind of oppress, justify marginalization, oppression of vulnerable groups, um, sexual minorities, um, to label and repress effectively all sorts of different, um, you know, all these intricate forms of novel and um, oppressive types of uh, political technology, as they say in the jargon. And now in the face of um, a living, you know, they normally discuss that, say, in the 19th century, um, late 19th century and 20th century. And now when it happens right in front of them and when the actual political stakes to drawing the conclusions of this analysis, obviously, very nowhere to be seen. Um, instead demanding probably more stringent measures, um, cowering behind their laptops. And so um, credit at least to Agamben for sticking with the political kind of conclusions of his analysis rather than simply um, throwing, them, throwing them away and conceding to the very thing that he's critiquing. Yeah, well, yeah I mean, it's almost like biopolitics was a programme and not critique. Well, um, I, the, the, pro- the, no, the, the problem is the biopolitics wasn't done well enough either. I mean, we end up with a, the worst of all worlds, I mean, in, in the West anyway, of measures which are authoritarian and uh, and pretty ineffective. So, you know. Which could, I think is actually a good, you know, that is a critique and that is one that's probably beyond the beyond the ken of um, kind of Foucauldian and Agamben style analyses. But, yeah, because um, they only point in one direction. I think, you know, you could have a much more kind of supple understanding where you'd have, uh, say, mobilizing people to go out and help uh, elderly people who are ridden in their homes to deliver them groceries and things like that, as well as doing a mass track and tracing program. That's a lot more authoritarian than what we have now, um, but seems to be would be have been uh, a much more favorable outcome, I think. I'm not sure it's necessarily more authoritarian. And, you know, there were kind of civil society initiatives of um, uh, people helping out their neighbours, um, Facebook groups. Um, in, I mean, I know like in Kent where I live, uh, the Facebook kind of the spontaneous um, civil society groups that formed were based around former Lever networks. So people who supported Brexit got together to kind of help vulnerable people who were isolating or um, who didn't have the support of family for whatever reason. Sure, that's so, I mean, not so, that's not authoritarian. Happened. But I mean, but if the state, no, no, no. if the no, state no, does, I wasn't it, suggesting yeah. you were. Yeah, I'm just saying, you know, that there was there were instances of it, um, and the incapacity of the state to mobilize people except through kind of authoritarian means has been uh, genuinely striking. Indeed. Okay, so we're going to leave that there. Thank you for listening, people. Uh, we'll be back with another one of these, I guess, in a month or two, uh, in a month and a bit's time. Uh, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye bye. <laughs>